warm welcome to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesse and worship team. I'm very thankful to be here this morning, and I'm very thankful that you are here. I pray that we would together and individually worship the Lord, and that he would open up our eyes to behold his truth and himself. We're beginning our series in Philippians. We'll be covering two verses this morning, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. But before we begin this morning, I'd like to set the stage for this sermon with a little story. Whenever I became a Christian, I was 18. I was in the summer in between my senior year of high school and freshman year of college. And that summer, I went on a youth event in Tallahassee, Florida. And it was during that time that the Lord really got a grip of my heart. And at this event, at this youth event, I was one of only two seniors, graduating seniors, who was on this trip. And so I had quite a bit of personal time by myself, alone time, to reflect and contemplate what God wanted for my life as I proceeded to this next stage of life. And God impressed upon my heart one question. There was one question that looking back, I wrestled with during this youth event. And that question was this, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be? So I was about to step into college, and so I was looking forward to the future. And I was also looking past college, and I was asking myself this question, who do I want to be? And my conversion experience happened whenever this question was answered for me. There was one night, I remember, going back to my bedroom. I was by myself, and I remember feeling a strong sense of conviction, just being compelled in my heart that God was at work. And so what I did is I got beside my bed and I prayed. Now, I didn't understand what was going on. It's only after the fact that I've been able to reflect and understand that this was the moment whenever I became a Christian. So I thought I was just rededicating my life or something like that. And I don't remember all that I said in my prayer, but I do remember that I said this. I asked God that he would make me a man of God. That he would make me a man of God. And that question, the question that God impressed upon me, and the question that I answered by the power of the Spirit was a question of identity, identity. Who am I? Who do I want to become? And these questions of identity really are very important questions. And I want to frame the sermon this morning in light of those questions, in light of the notion of identity. Identity. These are very important questions. And as Christians, we must continually reflect upon and answer these questions based upon Scripture. We live in a culture, we live in a time that tends to be, does not reflect well upon important questions. There's a prevailing thoughtlessness that plagues our era, our day. We're far too consumed with our phones, with Netflix, and Facebook. And we tend to numb ourselves to the important issues of life. One of those important issues being a question of identity. Who am I? 
Who is God? And as Christians, we have to reflect upon these questions, and not just as Christians, everybody. If you do not regularly ask yourself these questions, you need to. And also, not only is there a prevailing thoughtlessness in our culture, there's also a prevalence of getting these questions wrong, answering these questions in an incorrect manner. So take the question of, who am I? Who am I? Well, there's a number of answers out there. Who am I? Well, you can be whoever you want to be. That's a very prevalent answer. If you're a man, you can become a woman. If you're a woman, you can become a man. You decide who you are. Don't let anybody tell you what to do or how you are to think. You decide your own destiny. And who is God? What an important question. Our culture, broadly, might say that there is no God. God is dead. Another way is that you are God. You decide your own destiny. You determine what's important for you. Or, this is another answer that's given, what a dumb question. Those are some of the ways culture, our broader culture, our secular culture answers these important questions. And it's these two questions that I want to tackle this morning. Who is Jesus? That's going to be the first question we tackle. And then who are we as a church? So that's where we're going. Identity or identities. Who is Jesus and who are we as a church? If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. Verse 1. We'll read through verse 2. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're starting with this question, who is Jesus? An essential question. If you're familiar with the author C.S. Lewis, one of his famous arguments was that either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. I like the way he poses that issue. I agree with it. We have to answer this question of who is Jesus. His importance in human history goes beyond the importance of any other person. And as a, as a church, we have a specific answer for this question. We do not believe that Jesus was a liar. We do not believe that he was a lunatic. We believe that he is Lord that he is God in the flesh. And one of the passages where we get that from, that, that teaching that Jesus is God in the, incarnate, that Jesus is God in flesh, is all over Scripture. But it's also right here in Philippians 1, 1 through 2. And I get this, I get this idea from, from three places. Jesus is preeminent in this passage here. He's mentioned three times. You have his first mention Servants of Jesus Christ, verse 1. Paul, write, Paul writes to the all the saints in Christ Jesus. Again, there's Jesus. 
And then, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is featured more heavily here in this passage, in the greeting and salutation, than the Father and the Spirit. So Jesus is preeminent here. And I want to dig in to, first, this phrase, servants of Christ Jesus. Next week, next week's sermon is going to be all about what this word servants means. I'll skip that for this week. So I want to focus on of Christ Jesus. Of Christ Jesus. What does this mean? What does it mean that Paul sees himself not as a servant of God, broadly, but a servant of Christ Jesus? That's intentional there. While Paul does mention himself, he does refer to himself in Titus 1.1 as a servant of of God, here it's a bit different. Here Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. And there's an Old Testament background for this idea. Turn to Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Deuteronomy 34, Verse 5. It's page 177 in your chair Bible. This Old Testament background helps us understand what Paul is doing in Philippians 1 1. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Listen how the narrator of the Pentateuch refers to Moses. So Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Here we have the narrator of the Pentateuch referring to Moses as a servant of the Lord. Now, there are some differences between how Moses is referred to and how Paul refers to himself. One difference is the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And the New Testament's written in Greek. So the word for servant is not going to be the same. However, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that Paul uses in Philippians 1.1 for servant is the same word that the Greek translator of Deuteronomy 34 verse 5 uses of Moses. It's doulos. And secondly... Moses is referred to as a servant of the Lord. You see that capitalization of the Lord? That's significant. That's not uh, an unimportant detail. And what Bible translators are trying to tell us when that, that capitalization occurs is whenever that word is used, it's referring to the name of God. God's name, the way we pronounce it in English, is Yahweh. Yahweh. And here, Moses is referred to as a servant of Yahweh. Now this name has a specific meaning in the Old Testament. This is the one true God. There is no other God besides Yahweh. If there's one teaching in the Old Testament that's repeated over and over again, it's that idea. Moses is a servant of the Lord, of Yahweh. There is only one Yahweh. Now go back to Philippians 1.1. Paul does not say in this passage, Paul and Timothy, servants 
of Yahweh. What does he do, though? He substitutes Yahweh for Christ Jesus. Hmm. Now, was Paul a Jew? Most definitely. Did Paul believe that there was more than one God? No. So how do we explain Paul transitioning us away from a servant of the Lord, capitalization, to a servant of Christ Jesus? How are we to understand this? This is the way we're under to understand it. That Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. That's how these two ideas can be brought together. This is how Paul can remain a faithful Jew in reading the Old Testament, but also completely and fully understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? We know that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, because Paul sees himself not as a servant of God here, but as a servant of Christ Jesus. The substitution of Christ Jesus in the place of the Lord or God is intentional. And what it communicates to us is that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Secondly, Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. How do we know that? Go to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's very interesting about this verse is that grace and peace come from both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hint here that Jesus is a human. If Jesus were merely a human, how could it be that Paul being a Jew could say that blessings come from a person. There's something more going on here. Jesus is, is escalated to a place next to God the Father. Blessings, specifically grace and peace, come from two agents here. They come from God our Father and, that's an important conjunction, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is put on par with God our Father. Listen to what one New Testament commentator says. Texts such as this one, Philippians 1-2, where God, excuse me, where Father and Son are simply joined by the conjunction and as equally the source of grace and peace, make it clear that in Paul's mind, the Son is truly God and works in cooperation with the Father and the Spirit for the redemption of the people of God. Now, Pastor, why is this important that we affirm this? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. The notion that Jesus is divine is one of these central affirmations that we hold as Christians. We can't get this wrong, and it's important to regularly, regularly review important doctrines that we hold together. And also, we live in a post-Da Vinci Code era. Dan Brown wrote a book that argued that Jesus' divinity was a doctrine that was invented at the Council of Nicaea by Constantine. And many people believe that. Many people believe that. And it's important that we see that this doctrine doesn't come about in the fourth century 
When does it come about? It's right here. It's right here. It's everywhere. If we have eyes to see, we will see it everywhere. And we must get this answer right. Our salvation depends on it. Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate. Yahweh incarnate. Second question. Who are we? Who are we? This is a corporate question. This is a question that we should all answer together as a church. Now there's a close relationship between the individual and the church. You can't have a church being one way that the individual is not. So there's a real close connection here. But I will ask a corporate question. Who are we? And this is the answer. Verse 1. Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints. This word for saints is to translate it literally is to translate it as the holy ones. Holy ones. Those who are holy. And the idea of holiness the idea of holiness is the idea to be consecrated. To be set apart. For God to pluck you out from the world from the sinful context in which we live and to take you to himself and to change you to impart to you a righteousness and that righteousness manifests itself in how we live it can be understood as this how do you know a duck is a duck a duck quacks like a duck a duck waddles like a duck a duck swims like a duck how do you know a Christian is a Christian a Christian acts like a Christian a Christian thinks like a Christian a Christian speaks like a Christian holiness is that acting is that speaking is that doing it's whenever God transforms our life by the power of the Spirit and then we live differently we do not live how we used to live we live a different type of life that those who are justified are also sanctified those who God redeems he changes that's the idea now this idea is controversial and the controversy is so important it has reached national television now I do not watch this television show okay let me just say that I don't really watch TV in general my view is that TV is largely a waste of time. I try to avoid television. This show is called The Bachelorette. And I was sensitive to even bring this up because of the nature of the show. I, I would not encourage anyone to watch reality dating shows. Nonetheless, there's a good illustration that comes from the show. So in this show, as I said, I don't watch this show. I got this from an article. There's an encounter between the bachelorette and a contestant. Okay, the guy's name is Luke. The bachelorette's name is Hannah. And Luke is a Christian. And Luke asks Hannah on camera about what her view of physical intimacy before marriage is. Hannah admits that she has engaged in physical intimacy. But that it's okay to do so because Jesus will forgive her. 
Listen to this. This is her quote. This is her talking. Quote, My faith that is a big, huge part of me, and a lot of times people get Christianity and religion messed up. Your faith should be something personal and a relationship, and it's not to judge others. Regardless of anything that I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed, and if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no other man, woman, animal, anything can judge me. End quote. Now, there's a lot in there that I agree with and I think reflects biblical Christianity. Specifically, I do believe that we sin daily. We sin often. And Jesus does often forgive us. We continually need the grace of God. Amen? Now, I think she goes astray, significantly astray, when she says this. I can do, any, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. I can do whatever, and Jesus still loves me. Now, is that true? Is that proposition true? Can we do whatever, and Jesus still forgive us? Or another way to put it, does holiness, does the way you act, have anything to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ? I think that she's severely wrong here. And this is why I think she's wrong. Because she denies holiness. She says that you do not have to be holy to be a Christian. That you can act any old way and you be a Christian. I deny that. That's a statement that you can be unholy and still be a Christian. That's a statement that holiness is optional. It's just like, well, you know, take it or leave it type thing. You probably should be holy, but you don't have to be. Now, this statement that I believe holiness is essential for Christianity is also somewhat controversial, or at least it used to be controversial to say that at my beloved seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. There were professors there in past who believed something like what this lady believed, that holiness is an optional part of Christianity. I think these people are severely wrong. I believe that this is detrimental. I believe that this fosters nominal Christianity. You can just act any old way. I think that's cheap. That's easy believism. Now, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God says. Go to Philippians 1. Go back to Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. The saints, okay? You see that. Holy ones. Holy ones. So, Paul is saying here, he's writing to these people in Philippi, specifically a church. And how is that church characterized? What is the quality they are given? They're holy. These people are holy. Now, I don't think that this proves the point that holiness is essential to Christianity because here's the objection you could say. This is what you could say. You could say, well, pastor, simply because the church of Philippi is holy doesn't mean that every church and every Christian is holy. It does not follow that just because the Philippians were holy, then that means that holiness in general is an essential part of Christianity. So we need some other verse, right? We need some other verse that demonstrates that holiness 
Repentance and sanctification are essential. Go to Hebrews 12, 4. Hebrews 12, 4. Excuse me, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. So the church in Philippi is holy. Does that mean that we ought to be holy? Hebrews 12, 14. Look at how the author of Hebrews speaks of holiness here. There's two commandments given here. The first is to strive for peace with everyone. The second is to strive for the holiness. Now, what type of holiness is this? This is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are to strive for peace, and we are also to strive for the holiness, for a certain type of holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See the Lord here is a reference to salvation. What the author is saying is that there is a type of holiness that you have to have to be saved. That's the idea. Your life has to be affected in such a way that you live a godly life. Now, this, the overall theological idea in which holiness fits in is sanctification. Sanctification is another way to translate this noun holiness. You could also render it, and for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is a process in which God makes his people holy. It's a growth. Salvation is three parts. Listen very clearly. There's there's three parts to salvation. There's a past tense. We were saved. We were justified. That's oftentimes whenever we talk about salvation, that's how we pose it and frame it. We were saved in the past. There's also a future. We will be saved. We will be justified. Paul uses that language. There's a coming salvation. But in between the coming and the past tense notion of salvation, there's a middle part. There's a process of being saved. And if you neglect any parts of these salvation, you do not have true salvation. It's not just what happened in the past. It's not just what will happen in the future. It's all three of them. It's past, present, and future. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. First Corinthians 1.18. Look what Paul says here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Present tense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at the tense of this verb in the second part of verse 18. 
Who, how are Christians identified in this passage? They are identified as those who are being saved. Being saved. There is a process to salvation. Now, this is not the only verse. There are others where Paul uses a present tense verb to describe the process of salvation. And holiness fits in this category of being saved. How does sanctification work itself out in our lives? How does this process of salvation, what does it look like? It looks like God making us holy. God changes us. If you get rid of this process of salvation, if you deny it, if you deny holiness, you deny salvation. If you deny the process of sanctification, you deny what Scripture teaches with reference to salvation. Now, pastor, how is this not an invalidation of grace? I thought that salvation was by grace alone. You're putting in works. You're putting in merit. I have a text for you. Go to Philippians 2. And this will be the last text I reference. Philippians 2, verse 12. Philippians 2.12, we've, we've covered this verse. This is a powerful verse. And as we cover this verse, I want the question that I want to ask of this. How is the growth in holiness, how is sanctification not a work of our own merit? Okay, that's the question. How is it that I'm affirming sanctification, I'm affirming holiness, I'm affirming a process of salvation, and yet I also affirm that this process is by grace alone. How do you, how do you fit those together, Pastor? Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, there's the commandment. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Christians are supposed to do and have to do. We're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what's the basis for that? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason why I can say that holiness is essential for the Christian life, and yet we are still saved by grace alone, is based upon Philippians 2.13. Because our working out our salvation is not of ourselves. It is God. That God is so sovereign that he calls and elects us. And then what he does after we are justified, after he brings this righteousness to us and acquits us for our guilt, he begins to work in us. And that work is not of ourselves. That work is God. But nonetheless, he still uses the human will to bring that about. But it's not ultimately the goodness and the holiness which we attained is not of our own doing. It's from God. God is the one who works out his plan of salvation, who brings about holiness, who sanctifies the believer. It is God who both gives the will and the work so that we attain 
holiness. Holiness coheres with grace because holiness is completely of grace. Two points of application for you this morning. Two questions. First question is who is Jesus for you? Who is Jesus? Now, I would imagine that in our conservative theological context that no one would say that Jesus is not divine. No one would deny that. No one would deny Jesus' divinity. My concern for this church, more so than a theological error, now if I were in New York, or if I were in some big city, if I were in L.A., there'd be a, 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 a greater call to doctrinal purity. I don't think that that's our problem here. I think our problem is nominalism. Our problem is that we say, yes, Jesus is God, but Jesus makes no difference in our lives. That's my concern. So there is an intellectual application here to believe that Jesus is God. But more, does your life demonstrate that Jesus is God? Does your life demonstrate that what he says is true? Does, does, does your life demonstrate that he is God and that he is worthy to be obeyed? Does he reign supreme in your thoughts, words, and deeds? Or is something else God to you? That's my first set of questions. The second, coming off my second point, are you holy? Are you holy? Does your life reflect Jesus Christ? Oftentimes I ask whenever I'm evangelizing, do you obey God's commandments? And people will say, well, I try. Holiness is not just trying, it's actual accomplishment. Now, the desire leads to effectiveness. Desire leads to fruition. So, Maybe a, a better question is, do you desire to be holy? Or are you content to sin? When you sin, does it trouble you to the point that you want to stop doing it? These are very important questions. Nominalism plagues the evangelical church. It plagued my life. Our lives must be different. Our lives must be different from the world. We cannot be hypocrites. God despises hypocrisy. My hope and prayer is that God would accomplish this holiness in us as individuals and as a church. Lord, we, we pray for the grace to ask hard questions. We pray for the grace to be introspective, to dig deep in our hearts and our minds, and to root out sin to see sin for what it is, to ask hard questions of, is my life consistent with my confession? Lord, give us the strength to confront ourselves in the mirror of your word. And Lord, as we see our sin and as we see our hypocrisy and as we see our lack of holiness, we pray for your work. Jesus, work in us. Accomplish your work in our lives. Make us holy. Bring about this process in salvation here. Lord, we pray against nominalism. 
and lip service to you. And Jesus, because you are God, you are worthy of worship. And we pray for a spirit of holiness here that would bring about your great work in this world. To the glory of the Father and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.